Production made possible in part by MedPlus Advantage. You're listening to Radio Rounds, a talk show created and hosted by medical students and physicians in training, where today's stories are told by tomorrow's doctors. I'm Lakshman Swamy, internal medicine resident at Boston Medical Center. Today's episode features Dr. Steve Spear, senior lecturer at the MIT Sloan School of Management. Now, by going through that cycle of examination, diagnosis, treatment planning, implementation, and follow-up, the very best organizations take situations which are ambiguous or problematic, and through this very, very high-speed learning and discovery, discover their way to greatness. More from Steve Spear right now on Radio Rounds. Last week, we started our series with Steve Spear, where he discussed the importance of handoffs in medicine. Today's episode is titled Learning from Gas Stations, and we'll be discussing the effects of ambiguity in workarounds and really their impact on patient care. Here's Steve Spear. Today, I want to read a a very short case that's from an article that Dr. Spear wrote in the Annals of Internal Medicine. It's referring to a 68-year-old patient, Mrs. Grant. She was discovered at 8.15 a.m. with full-body seizures. CT scans revealed no neurological explanation, no clot, no mass, but the lab reported an undetectable serum glucose level. Infusions of, you know, giving dextrose, you know, replacing the sugar were completely futile. She lapsed into an irreversible coma and eventually life support was withdrawn. Uh, really a horrible case. So, so what happened here um, earlier that morning? So that was at 815 at about 645. An alarm had indicated that there might be an occlusion in one of her um, intravenous lines. And the night nurse had rushed to the room and and given heparin. Heparin is a blood thinning agent that kind of clears out. It flushes out the line so that it's it's functional again. Unfortunately, it seems like what really happened in the case is that the nurse had not given heparin, but had injected insulin into the the central line, which obviously had these, these you know horrible consequences, lethal consequences for the patient. Um, so why did that happen? So you know, we, again, we're here with Dr. Spear. So tell educate us on this a little bit. Oh, well, thanks for the opportunity to talk about this case. First of all, let me just give credit where credit is due. The The original case about Mrs. Grant was written by uh, Dr. David Bates and um, in, in a case which talks about this. And the commentary uh, to which you're referring is uh, one I co-authored with my friend and colleague, Dr. Mark Schmidhofer from Pittsburgh. And uh, the reason Mark and I wrote a, a response to this case and several others which appeared in this series of cases called Quality Grand Rounds and Annals of Internal Medicine was that as different as the cases were. There was this case about the uh, patient killed by the mix-up in medication. There was a case of uh, a patient who ended up getting a procedure because her name was similar to, but not identical to, the patient for whom the procedure was intended. There was another patient who entered for emergency uh, care and kind of fell through the cracks repeatedly in the handoffs, one professional to the next. What we realized is that there was uh, a pattern, a general pattern as to why these systems were failing patients. And we said the two failure modes was there's tremendous ambiguity in the system, and that even when people encountered problems, there were an extensive number of workarounds. So let me just set this up, is that in the case of um, Mrs. Grant, 
the ambiguities were several that when the clinical staff tried to figure out how a well-intended nurse well-intentioned nurse might have given a lethal dose of insulin rather than a a life-saving dose of heparin to a patient they started looking at the situation in which the work was done and what they discovered is that the nurse had to choose between vials of insulin and heparin which were about the same size shape weight and color they both contained colorless fluid they were stored near each other on a nursing cart, so there was ambiguity by the presentation of the material and its packaging. There was ambiguity about which medication was which in terms of the location on the nursing cart. To add to the uh, ambiguity of the situation, uh, the nurse had responded to an alarm early in the morning, so likely walked into a room which was darkened for the comfort of the patient. Uh, probably didn't turn on the lights, um, you know, checked, maybe even double-checked, but didn't turn on the lights for the convenience of the patient. So what was right, what was wrong, which was which was ambiguous. It wasn't clear and explicit. So if I could interrupt you for one second, I, I just want to think for a moment about if this had happened in, in, a, in a place where you out there uh, are working or would work, or if it happened to you, um, and you're in this, this case, you're, you're here and this, this nurse did this, would you, what would you feel like out there? Would you feel like blaming, blaming the nurse? Would you feel like blaming the pharmacy? So what do you, what do you think is first the, the usual response to something like this, Dr. Spear? I, I think we can all appreciate the usual response is to blame the nurse. You know, why wasn't he professional enough? Why wasn't he careful enough? Why didn't he check or double check or triple check one medication against the other? And see, the problem with that is that human beings aren't very good at checking for error. Uh, and there's a whole host of studies on this is that we simply aren't good at s- monitoring things which occur in very high volume quickly to see problems. So this reliance on the person checking and double-checking and being more careful, while it's easy to say, and in practice it's actually impossible. The alternative to asking people to check is to create situations in which checking is not necessary, where instead of ambiguous, where you have to be quote-unquote careful, what we do is we create um, situations which are explicit where we know what to do. One example is the design of cockpits where when people were first getting into aviation and bringing more and more technology and functionality into the cockpit, there was really the chance of uh, pilot confusion because uh, knobs looked the same and felt the same, and just like the insulin and heparin were co-located and all of that. And what I understand from my um, aerospace friends is now if you go into uh, a cockpit, you'd have to be go wildly out of your way to confuse things because by location, feel, touch, texture, color, tactile motion and whatnot, you simply can't confuse one control for another. Anesthesiology, I think, learned this lesson. My, my understanding is that maybe in the 60s that there was a rash of incidents where patients um, got anesthesia through an oxygen line or oxygen through an anesthesia line um, for the very simple reason, like in the cockpit, is that the Something which seems simple and trivial, the coupling between the tank and the hose, the coupling was the generic coupling. And so you had to check and double check. You were connecting the right hose out from the tank to the right hose into the patient. And anesthesiologists realized that what you needed is different couplings so that it's impossible, uh, unless you're going to get a lathe and machine a, a joint, that it's impossible to connect an oxygen line to an anesthesia line and vice versa. 
takes much less effort on the part of an anesthesiologist to get it right. Actually, it takes much more effort to get it wrong, so you have much less effort and much better results. And, and if, if any of your listeners want a, an example of that and they can't get into an aircraft cockpit or they're not anesthesiologists, go to a gas station with a, um, a diesel pump. So a diesel engine can take gasoline somewhat all right, but a gasoline engine can't take diesel. And so when you go to the pump, you'll find that the nozzle coming out of the diesel pump is much, uh, it's got a much uh, wider diameter. So you can't possibly get diesel into a gas tank, whereas you can get gasoline into a diesel uh, fuel tank. So the, these things are around us all the time. It's just a matter of um, being deliberate and, and looking for the ambiguity in life and realizing that with some creativity and effort, we can remove that ambiguity and make, make it much easier to do the right thing. If you had told me that medicine could learn from um, gas stations, I would be I would I would doubt you a little bit. But you know, clearly there is so much in medicine that I feel like when you start to think that way, you realize that our our work is so much harder for no real reason. What What do you think about that? Yeah, I think you're hitting on, on a real point. And you had asked me, do you blame the nurse? And the answer is no. You don't blame the nurse. You blame the people responsible for an environment for a, for a culture in which it's acceptable for people to struggle all the time to firefight and work around. And that's why we titled our response to this Quality Grand Round series as Ambiguity and Workarounds as Contributors to Medical Error. Because we said, on the one hand, there's the ambiguity, the, the easily confusable vial of insulin and heparin. Well, anytime people design something, there's always a chance they're going to make a mistake. We're all fallible. We're trying to design fairly complex things which are changing all the time. So good chance, good expectation, reasonable belief that we're going to design it wrong. All right, so that's where the ambiguity comes in. The question is, how long do you tolerate it? And what we saw in that article is that it's likely, almost guaranteed, that someone else had previously confused insulin and heparin by the frequency with which those medications are used. But they did so in an environment where the ethos is, get the job done. And get the job done means don't speak up, don't complain, if you have insulin and you need heparin, replace the wrong one and ex- get the right one. If you have heparin rather than insulin, do the same thing. But just get the job done. And you can always put it in these very positive, for the best interests of the patient, we have to just keep bowling ahead. Now, the, the thing that's really remarkable is that when we look at organizations which have incredible performance, creating far more value, delivering it to many more people at much greater speed with much, much less exertion, than average in their industry, and not worse than their industry, average in their industry. And just to scale this a little bit, when you look at issues around productivity, and it simply doesn't matter what industry you look at, the differences between best and average are typically two, three, four, five-fold. And this is making physical objects and designing things. The differences in quality can be 100-fold to 1,000-fold. And the difference, the differences in speed also two and three times. So when we look at the folks who are just exemplary by every meaningful measure, what we find is that when situations are ambiguous or unambiguous but wrong, they're very, very quick to swarm the situation, just like a good clinician would do to um, quickly examine a patient. Well, these folks are very, very quick to examine the system or the part of the system. And just like a good clinician is very, very quick to examine a patient, use that examination to inform a diagnosis. That's what the best operational organizations do. 
uh, like a good clinician who's got a meaningful diagnosis and develops a treatment plan, uh, the best organizations do that. And then they implement and follow up just like a clinician would do. Now, by going through that cycle of examination, diagnosis, treatment planning, implementation, and follow-up, the very best organizations take situations which are ambiguous or problematic. And through this very, very high-speed learning and discovery, discover their way to greatness. And, and that's why in my book I title these folks high velocity. It's not just the velocity with which they deliver product or service to market. It's the velocity of their learning, learning how to be high velocity and delivering value to those who depend on them. And it's great that you mentioned the book. For those of you listening out there who want to hear more about it, don't worry, we will be having another interview with Dr. Spear soon about his book, The High Velocity Edge. But thanks so much for uh, working through that case a little bit and showing us how there are ways to make uh, our jobs as clinicians easier and patients safer. Thanks so much, Dr. Spear. Are you welcome. Thank you. That was Steve Spear, senior lecturer at the MIT Sloan School of Management. We're airing our interviews with Steve Spear as a four-part series. Coming up next week is the third installment in that series, where Steve Spear will discuss his book, The High Velocity Edge. One of our previous guests, Dr. Don Berwick, has described The High Velocity Edge as a profoundly important book that will challenge and inspire executives in all industries to think more clearly about the technical and social foundations of organizational excellence. That interview coming soon on Radio Rounds. In the meantime, remember that you can download podcasts of all past episodes. Just search the iTunes store for Radio Rounds or visit our website. You can also contact our team via email, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. All of that information at radiorounds.org. Production made possible in part by MedPlus Advantage, providing group disability and life insurance to students and residents through participating educational institutions. Visit us at medplusadvantage.com. Radio Rounds is also proudly partnered with the Student Doctor Network, online at studentdoctor.net. Find answers to your questions about medical school or residency programs. Ask questions in our online forums and get answers quickly. It's fast, easy, and available now at studentdoctor.net. Of course, please remember that the views and opinions of Radio Rounds are not representative of the views and opinions of the partners of Radio Rounds. Thanks for joining us, everyone. For Radio Rounds, this is Lushman Swami from Boston. <laughs>